This is BTS with CTV behind the scenes, behind the stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos and I'll be your guide behind the curtain, which takes us outside today. We are surrounded by the buzz and hum of humanity in downtown Vancouver on a beautiful sunny day with legendary storyteller Mike McArdle. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thank you for asking me and honored. So what do you want to know? Well, I want to know, when you look at a scene like this, there are dozens of people here at the Vancouver Art Gallery. How many stories are you seeing unfold in front of your eyes? I see the gears turning in your head right now. They're, they're all here. I mean, every not every person, almost every person has a neat story. If, if I can't find it, it's my fault, not their fault. I mean, sometimes you meet uh, somebody who is uh, less than one of God's chosen children, and... Uh, uh, I can't get it out of them, but uh, just about everybody. Uh, uh, you, you say hello to somebody uh, here in Robson Square last Thursday. I'm w- working with uh, Steve Saunders, and uh, um, which way do you want to go? He points one way, I point the other. I say, that's perfect, because there are no wrong turns. <laughs> I remember a, a weird old garden with doodads and dingles uh, in, on Victoria Drive. So we go there, but I knock on the door. This is the second or third time I've knocked on this door. The guy must be dead because he never answers. <laughs> and uh, so we go from there to Trout Lake, <clears throat> which is one of my favorite places, which is filled with people. And uh, they always have really good stories, except that day there's nobody there and they have no story. We uh, go up and down Commercial Drive a couple of times. I don't see anybody. Uh, go back to Victoria. I don't see anybody. We go to the PNE. I don't see anybody. Fairly typical day. Um, we come, I say, come, it's getting late, so let's go back to Robson Square so we don't have to drive very far to get back to the station. And uh, there, right in the middle here, there's a couple of kids, uh, like four or five-year-olds, having uh, lunch, and their father is on the cell phone completely ignoring them. I see the kids <laughs> are kicking each other under the table. There can't be anything more beautiful than that. So, you know. I wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for the father to get off the cell phone and pay some attention to his kids. Uh, Can we take a picture of them? No. No. They're in a witness protection program or something. I don't know what they're in. But I turn around and there's a guy walking by with a branch in his hand. Beautiful. Where'd you get the branch? It's none of my business. Hello? It's none of my business. You don't have to tell me where'd you get the branch. And he ripped it off a a bush uh, that had pretty flowers on it. That's wonderful. And what are you going to do with it? I'm going to put it in his, in his garden on his balcony. He's got 200 plants on his balcony. The balcony's three feet by two feet. It was so beautiful and so prolific with flowers. I'd never seen one like that before. Uh-huh. I've seen other camellias, but this one was just so full of blooms, and it was like drooping with the weight of the blooms. Uh-huh. So I thought, okay, I have to have one. <laughs> He's a neat guy, and you don't have to justify it because because we can't promote ripping off the branches <laughs> off a city-owned tree, although I know the guy pays his taxes. So uh, say, uh, you know, you feel guilty. No, he says, brilliantly, he says no, because it was sticking near the ground, and he knew somebody was going to come by and prune it, so actually he saved that branch. There, the story is done. It's 10 minutes. Go inside and uh, say some words, put a picture down, put another picture down, and we're done. That's it. There's nothing more to it. Well, I mean, you make it sound easy, and, and for a skilled storyteller like yourself, you've done, you've told thousands of stories. Have you ever actually done the math to figure out how many stories you've told? They did. They did at that other place that I never talk about in Burnaby. Uh, when I left there, I had over 10,000 stories. Wow. It's pretty easy to figure. 250 stories a year. For there, it was 37 years. 
Here it's five more. Somehow that adds up to 10,000. Yeah. And yet you still have a passion for it. You oh, still... it's fun. It's absolutely fun. It's, it's better than... Uh, uh, look at Look at His hat. He's got a great hat. Where'd you get the hat? I got it at a second-hand store. It looks wonderful. Thank you. Thank it you, sir. Makes you look wonderful. Oh, okay. thanks. So the, so the hat's a fedora, kind of. Semi-cowboy, semi-formal, semi-whatever. And I guess the so, stories find you, don't they? <laughs> well, uh, I once worked with the cameraman, John Chant, in the other place, and he said, there's no sense in driving around in circles. Let's just park and wait. And so he refused to drive. And I would sit there. It was really frustrating. But, yes, the stories did come by if we waited long enough. And because I had to keep getting out of his truck to say, hello, do you want to be on television? And uh, they would say... Uh, Sometimes yes, sometimes no, and sometimes other words. Uh, and you're, when you work with the photographers, uh, it seems like they kind of set the, the tone for the story. and they you can do you... whatever they want. You know? I'm not <laughs> going to tell them how to take a picture. You know, We go find some, we drive around until somebody says, look at that. And then they wake me up. And, um, you know, over there is uh, that happening. What's, what's that? It's uh, somebody juggling chainsaws or somebody uh, with playing cards or playing chess or just standing there looking lonely. How about that lonely one over there? Okay, we'll go talk to that lonely one. That girl sitting out there on a log on the beach. So uh, we go out and uh, talk to her. And she just arrived from Germany. And she's lost. She has no idea where to go. Um, So we talk about Germany for a bit and then we talk about here and why she came here. And... um, I go over to the uh, woman selling uh, hot dogs. This is at uh, Sunset Beach. Do you want to go meet her? She's a really nice woman. Yes, why not? Come on, let's go, let's go meet her. And we also learned, something you probably know, that going to a new country by yourself is kind of lonely. I was really sad because I left my friends and my family, and I was really lost, yeah. like alone. This is Al, and this is Laura. She's Hello. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Wait, come go. What happened? Nice to meet you. I don't know. The story gods down there because I didn't know she, the the hot dog woman came from Germany. So we bring the two of them together, and presto, there's a story of this German girl finding somebody in Canada who can help her out at least for a day and cook a hot dog for her. I remember that story. That was kismet right there. That was just incredible. Things happen if you. If you want them, if you expect them to happen, good things happen. Like the Miracle Woman last week. Uh, you know, uh, out with uh, Murray Titus, I say I'm going to do a history story on the Beaver, which I didn't care about. I've known the Beaver is a ship that sunk 40, oh, 40, 140 years ago off Prospect Point. I've known about this for since I've been here, 40 years. And it's boring because, why is it boring? Because ships sink all over this place. And uh, so they put a little monument up to it. Nobody died, which is good, but it's just another ship uh, that sunk, a a tugboat kind of thing. And uh, then when I'm doing uh, the history of of the Prohibition and beer in Vancouver, which is phenomenal, you know, this place had breweries going 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and saloons that were open the same time, and everybody was drinking themselves into oblivion, which was fine time. And then... And then the women got the boat. Women got the boat, and women weren't drinking, and all the men went off to World War I, and so the women voted to have prohibition. Terrible. Okay. At the same time, uh, this little beaver tugboat is out in the water, and they're all smashed. The crew, the entire crew is drunk, and they've run out of beer. So they try to make a U-turn, and they get hung up on the rocks. 
and the play, thing uh, sinks. But they get off the boat and go to a bar and drink more. That's a good, neat story, you know. So, um, uh, so I do the story on the beaver. As it turns out, uh, there's uh, the anchor of it because people stole everything off the boat. But the anchor is in the Maritime Museum. We pull into the parking lot and a car circles around. I look at this, the driver and, uh, and his wife. She's got, she, they're, they're both in their 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s. And uh, she's got blue hair and he's got a little, little mustache and looks neat. I say to myself, I sure wish I could talk to you and do a story about you. I don't care why. Uh, but I know that they're just going to park and go into the museum and I'll never see them again. The guy says hello to me. I say hello to him. And it turns out they watch television. Bless you, you're the ones watching it. <laughs> and uh, I ask what, uh, what they're doing. She says, we're looking for a miracle, because we've just had a miracle. Would you like to be on television? And she had uh, a really bad eye problem, cancer in her eye, and she's been treated for a while. And then the thing started bleeding over the weekend, and uh, she needed an appointment with her specialist in UBC. And, and uh, they, she was told that uh, she can't have an appointment forever, you know, uh, even later than that. Uh, then somebody calls her back and says, we've squeezed you in. She says, it's a miracle. She says the most wonderful thing, you know, uh, miracles are a state of mind. If you, if you believe in them, if you expect them, they happen. And that's totally true. I've, uh, I've had uh, most of my life, second half of my life like that, because uh, what you believe, you get. Because that all happened when I met a kid named Riley. I'm sorry I'm going on. But, no, no, okay, I love Riley, it. I love Riley, it. That's why we're here. Riley is the uh, center part of, uh, of much of my life. See, I'm, I'm looking for somebody doing something. I'm at Trout Lake, and I see this kid. He's about, about 10 or 12, and he's fishing, which is pretty good because there's no trout in Trout Lake. But he's got a, his fishing, his, his, his fishing rod is a, is a stick that's still got twigs and leaves coming out of it. And the, and, the, and the line is twine, which got hairy things sticking out of it. And I can see that the hook is either a, a paper clip or a safety pin. You know, he's classic. Hollywood can't come up with this. And he's using rolled up pieces of, of bread for, uh, for bait. Bless you. So I say to the kid from a distance away, I say, uh, hey, kid, is your mother nearby? Because you can't talk to kids, right? And he says, my foster mother, and immediately I know, this poor kid. Now, foster parents have saved the world because uh, they used to be orphanages. Now, foster parents um, have saved the world. Um, and I know, I know he's had a miserable life because he's, in a, he's 10 years old and he's in a foster home. I also know from four words he said out of his mouth that he's got problems. He's autistic or something like that, one of those words. And he says, my foster mother is over there. And he points to a woman sitting in a chair reading. She says, he's very wild at home. Yeah, we can talk to him. He's very wild at home, but he calms down whenever she takes him to a park or a pond or something like that. Um, so I kneel down next to the kid on a very, very narrow uh, uh, dock, uh, wooden thing sticking out into the water. And the camera guy is leaning over my shoulder, almost sort of looking at the profile of, uh, of the kid's face. His name is Riley. And I say, the only thing you can say to a fisherman, have you caught anything yet? And he says, not yet. And then he goes, sucks up some mucus that's <laughs> dripping out of his right nostril, sucks it back up into his head. No, but I believe that 
whatever you believe, and I'm watching this green slime sliding <laughs> out of his, out of the right-hand side of his nose, almost getting down to his lip, and I think I'm going to throw up. And he, and he goes, I believe that no matter what you believe, and up it goes again. I can only hold on for another second or two. Have you gotten a nibble yet? I asked the kid. No, but I believe that whatever you... And there it comes again. This green, ugly slime is sliding down. If he sticks his tongue out and licks it, I'm going (laughs) to lose it right there. I believe that whatever you believe you can... I'm listening to Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, I don't care, Dr. Phil. I'm listening to all of them. And the kid is a total life of positive thought inside an autistic body with a runny nose. And and uh, I can't take it anymore. I see the stuff coming down. I got two lines out of him. I stand up, and I ask the camera guy if he could see the kid's nose. Camera guy says to me, are you out of your something or other mind? Why do I care about I said, can you see the kid's nose? Because if he had seen that, we would have had a possibly arable story about a kid with a runny nose. Because he didn't see the nose, you only hear it, and that can be modified, not changed, no fake news here, just modified a bit. You're listening to Jesus. You're listening to, to Andrew Carnegie. You know, you're listening to somebody totally positive about life. I uh, start thinking, what do I really, really want to do? I really, really got to find a story because I really, really need the job. And, and so I start, I start saying to myself, I'm going to find a story today. I believe that, even though I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. But I'm going to say I believe it to myself, even though I don't believe it at all. And there's, there's a story. Go around the corner and look at the lady planting a tulips, planting tulips. And the lady, why is she planting tulips? Because she's never going to see them, she says. Well, why are you not going to see them? Are you going to move? No, I'm going to die, she says. Oh, I'm sorry, I asked you. There's another story. You know, this is, yeah. this is, uh, I'm sorry. Well, why are you doing this? Because I like my neighbors and I want them to have something nice to remember me by. Ah, ah, ah. That's you beautiful. Know, that's, you know, that's because I walked down the street and saw a lady planting tulips. I asked her that. Um, so I started thinking maybe... Okay, I'm going to try it again, you know, next day. Um, I don't believe it's going to work, but maybe I believe it's going to work. So I believe it's going to work even though I don't. And I find a story. Well, we start going through a month without... I used to find a lot of stories, but sometimes I'd miss. And I would call up that other unspeakable place. I'd call them up at 5.30 and say, uh, um, here comes two, two blind people behind you. That's all. Two blind people together, two other people. Right there is... A nice story, and it would be nice. So I, uh, I start believing that I'm going to find it. Um, and sometimes I'd call them at, at 5 o'clock or 5.30 and say, I can't, can't, I haven't found anything. And I would hear the phone slam down just before, just after I heard the really bad words about me. So I start finding stories. And then a month goes by, six months goes by, and I don't miss. A year goes by, I don't miss. I start thinking, well... What else can I do with this? Okay, I want to get along with my wife. We get along fine. Just sometimes she doesn't get along with me, but I get along fine with her. So I say, well, I'm going to get along with my wife. And uh, like a year goes by, and I don't have any arguments with her. She has some with me, but I don't have any with her. Then I want to be healthy. Okay, I haven't been unhealthy 
too badly. Uh, but I start thinking, okay, I'll be healthy. I haven't been sick for years. Oh, because even if I wake up having had too much wine, which I never do, sometimes you know I wake up feeling like that, and I say I'll be fine, and I'm fine, no Tylenol, no nothing. So I start thinking Riley knows what he's talking about, and I write a book about him, and um, then I write another book about him, and I never saw him again. But so how do you find a story? How do you find a miracle? Just like that woman said, it's a state of mind. You believe you're going to find something good, and you do. So Riley was a turning point in your life. What was the turning point that got you away? Because a lot of people don't know this. You started out as a hard news reporter. I, you you did the crime beat. You did, did the crime, tough stuff. I did crime for 15 years, and then I did uh, uh, mental health and Maine and Hastings for two solid years, never leaving the street between Maine and Hastings and basically Columbia and Hastings. And uh, did four or five hundred stories uh, down there until I got to know everybody. Um, and it just, like every uh, cop, fireman, ambulance driver, and uh, reporter will tell you, it wears you out. It simply wears you out. And I'm not a very happy guy. I'm, I'm getting, this is uh, before I met Riley, uh, I'm just getting simply worn out. So I start doing, uh, say, I'm going to do nicer stories. I'm just going to look for something good because um, looking for something bad is not good. And I would do the bad the same as I do this. I would just go out on the streets and find something bad. So uh, I started finding good things, and I felt better. And some unspeakable uh, boss at the unspeakable place said, if you don't start doing real news again, I'm going to uh, put you in a place nobody's ever going to see you. And I kept on doing the good stories, and he said, that's it. You're going to the back of the show. Because we don't, you know, I can't fire you for doing that, but I can... I can exile you to oblivion. And he did it to get rid of me. Uh, but I've been uh, uh, at the back of the show ever since, and that was 25 years ago or so. And uh, and the viewers will stick around to the back of the show just to watch your story, so that tells you something. That's what we hope for, so stay around if you're, if you're listening. Each of your stories kind of tends to focus on something small. Sometimes it's a flag on the back of a wheelchair or a patch of flowers or something. But it feels like you're tapping into something much bigger with your stories. Is that intentional, or, or am I just projecting what I no, feel no, every no, time no, I no, see no, your no. stories? I love, simply, I love uh, close-up pictures. Everybody does. You know, today today it's a daffodil. Last week I said it was the uh, the, the stick in the guy's hand, a twig or whatever it was. And uh, you can look at something small, and it's easier to talk about something small. And, uh, yeah, the answer is yeah. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> You're one of the most recognizable figures in local media. I mean, even sitting here, people have come up to say hi. They've, they've kind of waved and stuff. Do you they find that... to see you. No, 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 no. But do you find that to be an imposition, just the fact that you're so recognizable? Or, or do you value that as a time to connect no, with people? I, I used to hide from it. And this cameraman told me off one day. He said, you know, they're being nice, and they're coming up to you to say hello. So, well, duh. All right, I'll be nice and I'll say hello to them. So I say hello to everybody, uh, ask their names, which is the most important thing in life, to remember somebody's name for a bit. Because this woman I uh, did on uh, Donald's Market on Hastings and, and Nanaimo, she, she remembered 10,000 names. She has a list of everybody. Her secret is, it's a good secret, uh, as soon as she meets somebody, she puts their name in a notebook and puts a little notation next to it, like... Uh, like a uh, nice-looking or funny hat or something like that. And then she says she every time she has this crutch that she doesn't have to look back at the notebook because because it comes because she knows if she needs it, it's there. 
And so she remembers names where most of us don't. But uh, there's like a fellow said in uh, in the story who uh, she remembered his name, and he said uh, that's something along the lines of that's all we hope for to be recognized and to be remembered. And and he's right. So if you ask somebody their name and you remember it at least until the end of the conversation before they go away, because so many people don't. Hello, what's your name? Uh, Peggy. Yeah, that's uh, Peggy. You know, that's that's really nice. And then uh, fine weather, and then you can't remember her name. Say goodbye, and she knows that you don't remember her name. But if you do, she feels good. So I yes, I talk to uh, people, and sometimes it turns out to be a story, like the miracle lady and the miracle guy. His miracle is that he got married to her on his 65th birthday. That was nice. Wow. Do you think that part of the enduring appeal of your stories and your storytelling and just yourself is that you still, in this age of technology when everybody seems so distant and all of our interactions or so many of our interactions are mediated by technology, by a piece of plastic and metal, that you remind us what it means to just say hello or to just notice those little things? I have no idea why people hopefully like the stories. I do know that if I stand here, there's a woman over there on her staring at her phone or, or whatever she's doing with it. Um, it's always like the guy at the beginning I was telling you about. He's on his phone while, the, while his kids are being ignored. The, the people who walk down, the, walk their dogs and never even look at their dogs. They're, they're texting or talking. They go into the newsroom, and I hate to say it, but it's quiet. It's quiet because everybody, from the boss, the big boss, he doesn't look at it. He walks right through the, through the, through the newsroom texting. And then he goes back the other way, texting, hello, hello, goodbye. And, um, but he hired me, so I can't say bad <laughs> things about it. People sitting at their decks, desks uh, texting, you know that, and it, that's it, yes. Whatever you said, I agree with, I don't like texting, and I don't text at all. The stories that you do, they do tap into something very human, and it feels like if we all just channeled a little Mike McArdle, that maybe we'd be a little bit oh, happier. You're pushing it a bit no, there. no, I'm serious. No, but do you, but does it go back to Riley or does it go back to Mike? Like, where does Mike? Where is Mike different from Riley anymore? Because it seems like you've really internalized that attitude, and now now that's the McArdle philosophy. Well, it's not just Riley. I have no idea. You know, I I, I basically couldn't read when I. Uh, do you, did you ever see the show Welcome Back, Cotter? No? It's a little before my oh, time, I'm sorry. God. <laughs> okay, it's a teacher of a completely uh, useless uh, bunch of kids in a New York City high school. Long ago, okay, in another age before you, um, they didn't care about uh, hurting kids' feelings. And if you were in high school in New York uh, and you were in the 12th grade, and if you were, you, if you were smart, you'd be in 12-1. That means you were going to 12-1, you're going to college, probably on a scholarship. If you're almost as smart, 12-2, you might have to pay some tuition. 12-3, you're going, you'll have to pay. 4, 5, and 6 means you're going to work in in an office doing moving paper from the inbox to the outbox. 6, 7, and 8 meant you were going into a trade. You're going to work in a a gas station. Then they skipped ahead to 12-13. 12-13. Those were for the losers. Those were the sweat hogs. Uh, Those were the people... With absolutely no hope at all, there was no teaching because nobody could read, nobody could write, nobody could think. And uh, the teacher in the class would be a big man, and he would say, shut up, shut up, and you'd sit there, shut up. And that was it. That was the education. When it came time to graduate, sit down, shut up. Nobody graduated. 
um, in the middle of the uh, next year, in February, when it was really cold out, uh, he came in one day and said, okay, you're finished. High school's over. Go. Leave. Just leave. That was it. And, uh, but I could not really read very well. I could read simple things, but uh, I could read signs, but I couldn't read. I, was, uh, I didn't know until I was in my 60s that I was heavily dyslexic. You know, when I write something, the words come out backwards. The, uh, when I read the, the same thing. But uh, this the teacher would bring in the really trashy tabloids, the, the New York Post, the Daily News, and um, uh, they would all have stories about, about uh, kindness, love, and, uh, and patience, except for that guy, about, <laughs> about uh, crime, sex, and corruption. That, that was all. And, and I could read that each, each was written on a, on a fifth or sixth grade level. And it would be three-fingered. Louis uh, got shot up today, but uh, his girlfriend with a Tommy gun took revenge and killed uh, killed the killers. Okay, that was pretty exciting, I thought. So uh, when I got out of high school, my mother met me with a six-pack of beer and two ham sandwiches and said, that was my high school you know, party. And she said, uh, what are you going to do now? I said, I want to work for a newspaper. Good idea, go to a newspaper. She gave me one subway token uh, to go to Manhattan. I was in Brooklyn at that time. I had never been to Manhattan. I, you know, it's like living in Surrey. I'd never been to Vancouver. And I uh, got on and took it to Times Square because I knew the New York Times was there. I didn't know the New York Times had long sentences with, with big words in it. Um, so I went inside, and they, it wasn't hard to get a job. Uh, so um, uh, they offered me a job as an outdoor messenger, and it was cold. New York is like Montreal in, uh, in the winter. So I walked across town, and I saw the Daily News. Uh, up a sign and uh, said, ah, that's the paper I was reading. So I walked in there and they gave me a job as an indoor messenger in the mailroom. And I stayed there for 15 years. I went from the mailroom to being a copy boy and, and changing typewriter ribbons to uh, mostly getting beer at 3 o'clock in the morning because you have to be able to, because everybody drank then, and you have to be able to do things that, that are, are important. Beer at 3 a.m. is important. And also I went out with the uh, 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 photographers and reporters to do whatever I had to do. I, I uh, was under the ring at, uh, at Madison Square Garden listening to the uh, scraping of the feet above me and watching in the front row the, the, the fat guy with the cigar and next to him the woman with the, with the pearl necklace screaming, kill him, kill him! It's a good education, you know? And I'd run back to the newspaper with the film and, and eventually I got to write slowly a story that they would tell me about. And uh, I uh, had a byline. The first one was uh, a guy who was going to be 100 years old, which was impossible then. Nobody lived to be 100 because they all drank and smoked too much. And uh, he talked about drinking and smoking. So anyway, uh, then New York got to be uh, really, really bad. I got out of the Air Force, and uh, I was shot at more in New York. New York was going through an epidemic of uh, crack then. The city was so dangerous that... uh, I wouldn't go into Grand Central State. I was the only reporter not carrying a gun. Because I, when I turned in my M16, I said I'd never have a gun again. That's uh, outrageous. Even the desk guys, uh, uh, they were all guys then. There was no there were two women in the whole thing. They carried guns too. It was getting to be very bad. You may know I was a hostage inside a rioting prison. I had a sawed-off shotgun put into my stomach. Uh, right before I got the first job, I got my teeth beat out of my mouth by a... Uh, a bunch of uh, people on the, on the street I was shot at. My uh, wife uh, fought off muggers that were beating up an old man outside our apartment door. 
She once laid on top of our kids in a little concrete playground while the cops and the bad guys had a gunfight over her body, and uh, no counseling after that. So uh, I read about, and I was reading, reading a little bit, I read about Vancouver National Geographic. I said, that looked nice. Well, at least the pictures are nice. And I slid the magazine across the kitchen table and said, you want to live there? She said, sure. Where is it? I said, Canada. She didn't say, where is that? Because I already said, I don't know where Canada is. I knew it was above uh, the U.S. I knew... Vancouver was west of Montreal. I wrote to the Vancouver Sun. They hired me. Um, I, I rented a U-Haul truck for three days because I knew one day to Montreal, one day west of Vancouver, find an apartment, and one day to return the truck. The motor's running inside New York City when a, one of my wife's uncles comes up and gives us an automobile association map that folds out, and I start folding it out, unfolding it, and I give it to our, our son sitting next to me, he hands it to his sister. She hands it to her mother. I'm still holding the other side of the map. I said, where the heck are we going? We, uh, we drove across the country and during an oil embargo because there's always oil and gasoline problems. We could only get 10 gallons of gas at a time, so it took us forever. We got here. There was a housing crisis. There's always a housing crisis. We lived in a tent in White Rock for a month. Uh, while with your kids? Yeah, with kids and, uh, and wife trying to get uh, find an apartment. That's it. I stayed... I worked in this courthouse when, as a reporter uh, when it was a courthouse. Then I went from there to that unspeakable station that I never talk of. And uh, then I've come here, and CTV is the most wonderful place I've found in a long time. Everybody's so nice. We've been thrilled to have you. I've been thrilled to have you on the podcast as well. We could sit here and talk for hours. This could be a three-hour podcast very easily. I apologize for talking so much not at all not at all i want to thank you so much for sharing your stories and uh, i'd love to, ha- to have you back again sometime i have nothing else to say <laughs> i'd love to of course thank you thanks mike and thank you for joining us on bts with ctv is there a topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast email me bts at bellmedia.ca and if you like what you heard please subscribe for more insights tidbits and the stories behind the stories i'm penny daflos 